Welcome to the Explore Words, Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, renowned historian Timothy Garton Ash sheds light on how Europe slowly recovered and rebuilt amid the ashes of the Second World War, and then faltered. This subject is close to his heart and is the subject of his book, Homelands, A Personal History of Europe. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode hears one of our greatest writers in Europe and why the need to protect this great continent has never been more urgent. Okay, well, thank you, and thank you very much for coming along to what I hope and think will be a, an interesting session. It's on a day when a lot is happening in the world, um, some of which uh, Timothy knows more about than most people. So we have lots to discuss, but we're here uh, in the first place to discuss his book. I don't need to tell you that uh, Timothy is a professor of European studies at the University of Oxford. He's also a very uh, distinguished journalist um, who writes for The Guardian, New York Review of Books, of the Financial Times when they're lucky enough to persuade him to uh, come uh, their way. This book is a personal history of Europe. He's he, he says that it, it's not an autobiography, it's a history with memoir. And what memories he has. He, I used to be a journalist, I always used to envy and admire him because I would be sitting in London writing about unit trusts or things like that, boring things like that. He would be dashing through um, the exciting points of Europe, filing the most uh, wonderful and thoughtful pieces. And the memories start, I think, Timothy, with a school exchange when you were 14 and the smell of Gullwise tobacco, which was uh, exciting and thrilling. At the age of 25, in August 1980, he was in the Lenin shipyard in Gdansk, seeing this dynamic uh, young leader, Lech Walesa, charging around doing bold and brave and extraordinary things. He was there in that, um, through that period of optimism and excitement through the 80s when, um, when Eastern Europe became Central Europe, <laughs> essentially. He was everywhere. And um, you can see some of that in his wonderful book, uh, some of you may have read, called The File, uh, which was his investigation into the Stasi account of his um, carryings on, uh, which became available after the fall of East Germany. He found out who had been reporting on him and who hadn't been reporting on him and got uh, a marvellous account of that. Um, Post-Cold War settlement, there's very thoughtful, some rather sad things in the book. Uh, the, um, and he also uh, tells us movingly how when he looks at the uh, video of the opening of the Olympic Games in London in 2012, tears come to his eyes because there was them there he argues, a sense of hope and optimism and togetherness in this country, which perhaps hasn't quite been maintained in the following years. Uh, and most recently, of course, he's been writing powerfully and movingly about the horrors of Ukraine. And I think it's not too much to say that his writings in, the, in Europe and in the United States on these events of the last year have made a positive difference to the West's willingness to support Ukraine in their struggle for freedom. So we're lucky to have this chap here with us today. The plan is that um, he'll talk uh, for a little while, then he and I will have a chat for a little while, and then there'll be plenty of time for discussion and comment and your views. So if, that, if that's okay by you, we'll press right ahead. Timothy. Thank you very much, Richard. Well, it's wonderful to be here in Bradford. I'm ashamed to confess for the first time, um, having been all over Europe and indeed to Uzgorod in Transcarpathian Ruthenia, but this is the first time I've come to Bradford, but I hope not the last. I will come back to the City of Culture uh, in 2025, which uh, is, is great. So it's, it's wonderful to be here. This book took me just 50 years to write. Uh, 50 years of traveling around Europe, writing things down in little notebooks like this one, in which I shall also 
make some notes on my visit to Bradford, which has been fascinating, um, observing great events, as you mentioned, meeting um, figures great and small in European history, worrying about Europe, writing about Europe. And it's a rather unusual genre because it's history illustrated by memoir and reportage. So there are a lot of stories in there, taken from the notebooks, but each one of them makes a larger point about the historical story I'm trying to tell. Um, so, for example, on my first trip to Czechoslovakia, what was then Czechoslovakia in 1979, I meet a guy who I know only as Yiji, and he tells me that he is very much looking forward to his first ever visit to the West. He's saved up for seven years, uh, get all the permissions. This is the first time he's been allowed out. He's only allowed $12 hard currency a day, so they're going to sleep in the car and eat canned food that they bring from Czechoslovakia. But it's his 10th wedding anniversary, and they're going to be in Paris, and he's so much looking forward to it. And I, I see a couple of younger people in the room here. I think the people of your generation, the idea that you have to save up for seven years uh, and then have to sleep in the car and eat canned food to go to the other end of Europe um, is quite extraordinary. And so it brings home the sense of what it was actually like to live behind the Iron Curtain. Um, two days after the Berlin Wall comes down, uh, I've actually walked through the wall across the death strip, the strip where people would have been shot just three days before for trying to cross, and into East Berlin. And I meet a very excited East Berliner who tells me he's just seen an improvised poster in a window which says, only today is the war really over. And that's not just an anecdote, because actually there's a much deeper truth there which is that for all the Europeans living behind the Iron Curtain, really the war was only really over in 1989, not in 1945. Or then, a couple of years later, um, the story of meeting Helmut Kohl. Um, anyone here seen Helmut Kohl? You must have seen Helmut Kohl, Richard. Helmut Kohl was the largest human being I have ever seen. He was enormous, both in height and particularly in girth. He's what Dr. Johnson called a mountainous man. And Cole was towering over me in his office in Bonn, sitting in a chair like this. And we were talking about German unification, which he'd just achieved and what the consequences were for Europe. And he suddenly said, by the way, do you realize you're sitting opposite the direct successor to Adolf Hitler? a conversation stopper, I, if ever I heard one, I don't, what does one say? Um, what I should have said was, um, actually, Herr Bundeskanzler, there was Grand Admiral Dönitz <laughs> between you and, and uh, between Hitler and you, because Grand Admiral Dönitz was actually the last head of a united Germany. But of course, um, I was too gobsmacked to say anything. Um, but, but, but Cole was making a very serious point, which was how conscious he was of his historical responsibility. He was, he said, the first chancellor of United Germany since Hitler. Uh, Hitler had done everything wrong. He wanted to do everything right. Hitler had wanted to put a German roof over Europe. He was going to put a European roof over Germany. Um, and so on, all the way through meeting Vladimir Putin in 1994, which we might talk about an encounter with George W. Bush in 2000-2001, all the way through to the very last section of the book, uh, chronologically, which is um, visiting Ukraine in December last year and meeting people who had just come back from the front or were just going back to the front. Mm. And what those stories are illustrating is a larger story, which is fundamentally a story about Europe and freedom. Mm -hmm. That, in the way, those are the light motifs of this book. And it's a story which, broadly speaking, is one of a gradual and spectacular ascent, and then 
a deeply worrying descent. So when I first started traveling regularly to Europe in 1972-73, after that first schoolboy visit, uh, where we watched the moon landing on French television, Armstrong, il dit, c'est un petit pas pour moi, c'est un grand pas pour l'humanité. I was trying to help translate. <laughs> um, when I first started traveling regularly in Europe, most Europeans lived under dictatorships. People forget that now. We did the numbers. 389 million Europeans lived under dictatorships, only 289 million under democracies. Spain, Portugal, and Greece were all still dictatorships. And starting with the end of the dictatorships, the fascist dictatorships in Spain, Portugal, and Greece, you then have this ascending line with the gradual spread of freedom and democracy through 1989, East Central Europe, to the Baltic states, to Southeastern Europe, to Ukraine, um, with a massive expansion, both of the EU and of NATO. EU, only six member states in 1972, 27 by 2007, um, NATO 15 to 26. Um, I was a couple of weeks ago in Estonia. Incredible story. A state that did not exist on the map of Europe in 1989 is now not only a sovereign, independent, free country, by the way, fourth in the world on the Human Freedom Index, well above Britain, Germany, and France, um, but also in EU and NATO, and therefore people sleep easily in their beds, even though they're right on the frontier with Putin's Russia. So a huge story of progress up to about 2007. And then starting in 2008, you have what I call the downward turn, the simultaneous events of the financial crisis, the global financial crisis, and Putin's seizure of two big chunks of Georgia, Abkhazia, and South Ossetia, starts a cascade of crises, sometimes called the polycrisis. So the, the global uh, financial crisis segues into the Great Recession, austerity in this country, which you know all about up here, mm -hmm. uh, the Eurozone crisis. Um, uh, Viktor Orban starts demolishing democracy in Hungary, which had only regained freedom in 1989 in 2010. Then you have 2014, Putin's seizure of Crimea, the beginning of the Russia-Ukrainian war. 2015, the refugee crisis. 2016, Brexit, Trump, Marine Le Pen, populism rising in Poland, COVID, all the way down to the 24th of February, 2022, and the beginning of the full-scale war in Ukraine, the largest war in Europe since 1945. So that's a pattern of the book, this long, slow, but and discontinuous, but nonetheless ascent, and then this downward turn since 2008. And of course, the question we keep asking ourselves is, you know, how much further down are we going to go? Where is this war going to lead? I hope we can talk about this. Um, one person I met in Lviv in December 2022, and maybe I'll finish my introductory remarks on this and then we can start talking, was an extraordinary man called Yevgen Hulevich. I write about him in the book. He was a translator, editor, cultural critic, someone who'd been totally at home at a literary festival in his late 30s, when the full-scale invasion happened on the 24th of February 2022, he thought, I must do something about this, so he started by helping refugees. And then he said, that's not enough. So even though he was in his late 30s, he volunteered. Uh, very rapidly trained, weeks, months of hard infantry fighting in the battle for Hassan which was like something out of the First World War. He, wa he was a grenade launcher, so he had a grenade launcher on one shoulder and a carried a spade on the other. And he lived literally for months in foxholes that he himself had dug out in the garden. Wounded, 
back to Lviv, healed, I'm going back. Went back a second time, more seriously wounded in the back on both legs, back for rehabilitation. And when I met him in early December last year, he was just recovering. And I will never forget the conversation with him. Um, um, uh, it was mesmerizing. Um, um, uh, uh, there was something, there was something slightly robotic in his voice, even though he's a very articulate guy. Something kind of burned out in his eyes, uh, in the way he talked about his experiences. We talked quite a lot about death and what he thought about death and was he prepared for it. But he said, I'm absolutely determined to go back to the front for the second time because these raw recruits need experienced soldiers. We're the guys who can stop them getting killed. And sure enough, he went back. And a couple of months ago, I got the news that on the last day of last year, he was killed by a Russian fighter in the fighting around Bakhmut. So I just wanted to mention that name, Yevgen Hulevich, and the extraordinary courage of, of the Ukrainians that I met. I, I've been twice in the last six months. I mean, it really is something like what 1940 was for us. Mm -hmm. That's to say, you know, a moment of existential threat and trauma and people being bombed and people being killed, but also our finest hour and their finest hour and a fantastic sense of national purpose and optimism and courage and, and hope and that this is going to, you know, just as 1940 in a way redefined our sense of ourselves, and redefined the way the world thought about us, I think it's, it's doing the same for, for Ukraine. And I think that's a, that's a real message of hope. So there's a, a lot of other themes in the book. Um, there's a lot about immigration and uh, how that affects uh, Europe. There's, of course, Britain and Europe is a significant part of the story. There's uh, much about Germany and so on. But maybe we can talk about that in, in discussion. Very good. It's a book, as Timothy has uh, hinted, rich with a combination of anecdotes and big themes that fit together uh, beautifully. Perhaps I could start with a, a sort of a naive kind of journalistic question. You talk about, the, I think, the, the heady 30 years as the ascent came up, and there you were following it. Who were your heroes? Who did you think during that period? These are great men that I've seen and worked with. Who are the people who really do feel great men and women? I hope, of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting. So um, th th this this question was posed at a, at a at a dinner I was at in in Brussels. So who, who's your European hero? And so we went round the table. I actually, just take a moment and maybe in yeah, conversation. Yeah, a good idea. Think. Think. <laughs> just don't take too much time over, just spontaneously, who you, who's your European hero? And it was really interesting. So amazingly, King Juan Carlos of Spain still got one vote. Mm. Uh, a very loyal follower <laughs> of Juan Carlos. Uh, Willy Brandt got one mm. vote. Olaf Palmer got one vote. Um, I think Jean Monnet got one vote. Mm. Winston Churchill got two votes, interestingly, not from Brits. But the clear winner to whom I gave my vote was Václav Havel the playwright, dissident, leader of the Velvet Revolution in Prague in 1989, which I was privileged to witness at first hand, then first last president of the Czech Republic, first president of Czechoslovakia. And I mean, uh, there are several other figures I would name, but he stands out. Uh, he was one of the most extraordinary um, human beings. I, I was privileged to be good friends with him. And um, I describe in the book one one visit to him when he was under house arrest in his house in the country. And I drove out into the country in northern Bohemia and uh, hoping to get to him. And, and when I got to the house, the, the entrance was blocked by a police car. So thinking rather fast, I drove on up into the woods behind and worked my way back down through the thick grass, um, slightly cursing my white Burberry raincoat, which made me rather visible. And if they'd filmed it, it would have been a perfect 
propaganda film entitled Western Agent Visits Václav Havel. Tap on the back door and Václav appears with a red t-shirt saying Temptation is Great because Temptation was his latest play that had just been put on and we had a long, really intense conversation about, um, about what kept him going, about what it was like to write when you knew that any moment the police might come through the door and confiscate your last six months' work, writing under that kind of pressure, but also about why he thought it was worth keeping going with his dissident activity, even though he had no idea, this is what people forget, he had no idea at all that it was all going to be over in five years' time. He was expecting it would take 20 years, 25 years, maybe he would never live to see it, like um, you know Navalny in Russia. And it's now it's very difficult not to succumb to what the French philosopher Henri Bergson called the illusions of retrospective determinism the almost irresistible temptation to believe that what actually happened somehow had to happen, right? So, so people, people say, of course the Berlin Wall had to come down, or people say, of course the Brits would vote for Brexit. There was nothing inevitable about the either of these things, so that the, the particular quality I want to single out is that quality of, of integrity and courage um, in times when you don't know whether you're going to succeed or not. Um, um, and then, of course, he led the Velvet Revolution. He became a great European statesman after that. But the real greatness comes for me in that moment of, of, of hopelessness, in a way. And that comes out beautifully in the book. You write about that beautifully, the, that sense of excitement and opportuni uh, op optimism ag against the odds. Has anybody got a rival to Haval as they're here? Has anybody who would like to pitch for some other? Yes, it'd be fascinating to hear. <laughs> in, in, in who, who's European heroes? Yes. Well, mine's not um, somebody who for historical gravitas as Roy Kinsey, but talking about kind of like um, women's role in, in shaping Europe, mm. people like Sam Amari, who unfortunately is, is absolutely continued for most of Germany and Finland, but mm. at, at least at that point did seem as though that could spark some kind of new it's a great choice. And actually, Kaya Kallas, who is the Prime Minister of Estonia, who is an absolutely formidable woman, who is a, uh, who is a great rep rep representative of what I call the 89ers. So one of the kind of arguments of the book is that, that the Europe we have today is made by four key political generations. The 14ers, that's to say people who are shaped by their youthful experience in the First World War, Churchill, Harold Macmillan, Conrad Adenauer, Charles de Gaulle. The 39ers, people like my father, and indeed, as we know from talking about it, your father, who were completely shaped by their experience in the Second World War. The 68ers, there may even be one or two here, the 68ers, you a 68er, Richard? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyone, Could be, yeah. Anyone admit to being a 68er in the room? <laughs> I, I, I would admit, except I was so pathetically feeble. I didn't, <laughs> I was, I didn't throw any paving stones at anybody. I was 13, I aspired to be. That's good. I'm, uh, you're like me, you're a post-68er, yes. And then the 89ers, those who were shaped by their youthful experience in 1989. Mm -hmm. And so, so Kaya is a, is, a, is a great example of that. But any other candidates for European hero? Please don't hold back. I'd love to hear. Yes. Ah, wow. There's an interesting, that's a name I haven't heard for some time. Why Rosa Luxemburg, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, okay, is that on? Yeah. Um, so because she understood the, the fact that capitalism always results in military war warfare um, and her critique of the First World War was phenomenal for what she was writing and willing to be imprisoned for and ultimately murdered um, for her beliefs. So oh, wow. That's well, thank you very much. That's, that's a very interesting. That's a really interesting one. Yeah. And any other volunteers for European heroes? 
we'll, we'll come on to the yeah. we'll come on to the discussion yes. uh, in in, yeah. in ten minutes yeah. time, yeah. and we can. But we're passing there. You were talking about the fourteeners and the thirty-niners and the sixty-eighters and the eighty-nineers. Where are the twenty-twoers? I mean, here we are at a moment in European history of the most remarkable, astonishing, frightening time. We have a war that none of us have seen anything like it in our in our lifetimes. Um, why aren't why isn't this shaping our conversation more than it is now? It's certainly in Western Europe. Yeah, well I mean you know we're, we're talking on a really extraordinary day in the story of that war. Yeah we'll come with on to Mr. That. Prigozhin and what looks like uh, at least in on a small scale civil war in Russia which um uh, so I was giving my spiel about the generations, the four generations at the University of Göttingen in Germany, and a student piped up from the back and said, do you think there'll be a generation of 22ers? Um, and I thought, I thought it was such a brilliant idea, and actually rather inspiring idea, so I thought about it a lot. And I would say, I've sure as hell met them in Ukraine. In Ukraine, you have the most fantastic generation of people in their late teens, early 20s, who are going to be absolutely shaped for life by this. I mean, their whole lifelong political commitment. Also, by the way, to Europe, because every second word you hear in Ukraine is Europe. I mean, the, 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 this is they are defining their national mission as getting as far away as possible from under the Russian bear and as close as possible to Europe. Unlike for many Eurosceptics in this country, Europe for them means freedom, means independence. It's the opposite of the Eurosceptic narrative in this country, interestingly. Um, I've met them in Estonia. I've met them in Poland. But when I talk to my students in Oxford or young people in France or Spain or uh, Germany, much, much less so. It's still quite a long way away, and also they have, you know, they have their own rather passionate concerns. I mean, for example, climate change is a huge issue for them, or indeed, socio, you know, inequality is a huge issue for them. So, my, you know, I, I would love there to be a generation of 22ers because I think these generations are really crucial for taking the European story forward, and I think Europe needs it. I don't think it's there yet, but you know, to some extent, political generations are not made, uh, are not born; they're made. And so, I think you know, we may yet find inspiring leaders like you know Danny Cohn Bendit in 1968 or Jean Monnet after 1945, who could craft a narrative that could appeal to the 22ers, both in Eastern Europe and in Western Europe. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. I'd like to. Um, before we get on to Ukraine, which we must do, um, I'd just like to pick up something you just mentioned, and which is a recurring theme of your book. You say that um, uh, Europe, your Europe, is about the struggle for freedom. And then you go on to say that for you, uh, the essence of that is freedom of speech. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? And could you let us know how you feel, A, about the struggle for freedom, and B, where we are on freedom of speech? Gosh, a big question. Well, first of all, to the first part, um, because my formative experiences were in dictatorships with friends who were fighting for freedom, whether, again, the dictatorships were fascist or communist, uh, and for them, the hope of freedom was attached to Europe, um, for me, that's very much what Europe is about. And I've always been happiest when uh, the causes of Europe and freedom have been, as it were, going marching arm in arm, and unhappiest, and this does happen, when it's been the opposite. So, for example, I write quite a lot about the Eurozone crisis and the way in which Greece suffered in the Eurozone crisis was anything but an experience of freedom related to, 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 to Europe. So, but nonetheless, for I think most countries uh, in the EU, unlike many people in Britain, the two things do actually go together. And certainly in Ukraine or in Estonia, coming into the European Union and NATO, by the way, is the way you defend your 
your freedom. So it's not the nation against, against Europe. And of course, at the heart of that is free speech. And I think that um, we are, you know, th there has been a great leap forward for free speech. Let's be absolutely clear about that. Also in this country and elsewhere, I'm sure you would agree. I mean, after all, we had theater censorship until the 1960s and the realm of what is sayable. But free speech is always contested, always challenged, because it's a, um, uh, because it, it's a way of speaking truth to power. So there's going to be some kind of power that doesn't like it. And I think there are a bunch of threats to it which are different from those in the past. In the past, it was usually from the state. Censorship was a cl classic classical form of control. Now um, it's by ownership. So if you look at a country like Hungary or a country like Turkey, it's not so much censorship. Mm -hmm. It's because the government basically has the media owners in their pocket. Uh, it's the great digital platforms like Google and Facebook which are private superpowers and are determining, you know, unilaterally and without a right of appeal what we can say and what we can't say on those platforms we all use. And to some extent it's pressure from below. So in universities to some extent we have, uh, we have you know, the, the problem of no platforming, um, somewhat, somewhat overstated, I think. But, but nonetheless, you know, I think uh, compared with 50, let alone 100 years ago, um, we're still in a pretty good place in relation to free speech in most mm. of Europe. Mm. Mm. Can we turn to uh, Ukraine? And my mind is kind of racing. There's so many different questions. I'm almost inclined to say just talk about Ukraine, but <laughs> perhaps, perhaps to, to, start, to start the ball rolling, one might say um, a year ago, whenever it's uh, 13, 14 months ago, could you imagine we would might be where we are today? And do you think that the response of the West has been adequate? Yeah, so um, perhaps I can start slightly further back. Yeah, sure. Because mm. there's a whole debate about why this war is happening in the first place. Mm. And I think the answer to that is very clear. It's because declining empires don't like declining. Mm. Ask the British, mm. ask the French, ask the Portuguese, and so they strike back. So I met Vladimir Putin when he was a totally unknown deputy mayor of St. Petersburg in 1994, just three years after the end of the Soviet Union. Conference in St. Petersburg, Nobody knows who this guy is, V. Putin. The end of two days' discussion, he pipes up and he says, but we have to remember that there are territories that have historically always been Russian, which are outside the frontiers of Russia, and we have a, to look after them. And he mentions Crimea, 1994. Mm. He says there are 25 million Russians outside the Russian Federation, and we have a duty to protect them. Don't tell me that NATO enlargement mm. was the cause of his invasion of Ukraine. The revanchist impulse was always there, the empire striking back. Of course, one can't simply mm. draw a straight line from 1994 to 2022, but that's the fundamental reason mm. for what's happening. One of the um, questions you tease out in the book is whether the post-Cold War settlement uh, was, um, uh, I think you use the words, uh, another Versailles. In other words, yeah. was the West too arrogant or too uh, complacent in the way it responded to the collapse so of the so Soviet Union? One can always find missed opportunities. You can always find things we could have done better. But broadly speaking, I think the answer is no. Mm. Um, and by the way, there never was a promise not to enlarge NATO no. to the East. It's important to say, I document mm. in considerable detail, you know, actually in the 1990s, uh, we, the West, the Clinton administration, the EU, Britain still in the EU, did try quite hard 
to help Russia. To Clinton make especially, transition. actually, didn't he? Clinton. Uh, there was large-scale economic assistance. Yeah. There was the Germans talked about a modernization partnership with Yeltsin's Russia. And remember, we brought Russia into the G7, yeah. the kind of top table of the West. So actually, we did a lot. Mm. And, and by the way, we also did NATO enlargement in the initial two phases um, with Russian agreement and yeah. indeed actually with Putin's agreement. So I don't think that Kay. we should beat up on ourselves. Right. Um, it went pear-shaped in Russia. Um, it was probably going to go pear-shaped anyway. Mm. So then you get the empire striking back. And for me, the big what if is not, could we have done more in the 1990s, but what if we'd responded more strongly to Georgia 2008 or particular 2014, mm. when for the first time post-1945, one country simply seizes by force a great chunk of another country, namely Crimea. Mm. Yugoslavia was a different story because it was within the frontiers of, yeah. of, of, of a, former a former state. Um, if we'd had a stronger reaction at that time, we might not be where we are today. Mm. Compared to a year ago, I mean, remember that on the 24th of February 2022, most people thought mm. that Ukraine would crumble. Yeah. Um, that did you? Or did you feel that? Um, no, I didn't think that, but I didn't think they would have the extraordinary success mm. that they have had in, in resisting. Um, I talked in February this year to the head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, General Zaluzhny, to the head of their military intelligence, and Andriy Yermak, who's the right-hand man of, of President Zelensky. And it's very interesting, Richard, because apropos of what's happening as we speak, they have a theory of victory, which is essentially political. So they don't think that they have, they can just grind away square kilometer by square kilometer until they have regained every square kilometer of their territory up against a much larger army, a much larger country with a formidable army. Their theory of victory is that if you can deliver such a shock or series of shocks to demoralize Russian forces, that will catalyze political change in Russia itself. And so the victory will come through political change mm. in Russia. Either Putin deciding that he's just, it's just not working and so he's going to himself sue for peace, or by catalyzing a crisis, shall we say, Mr. Prigozhin, mm. head of the Wagner Group, suddenly taking his forces amazingly back into Russia. Do you, I mean, uh, uh, just in case anybody isn't completely on top of the news, perhaps you just give a context of today so and then tell us what you think the implications of that are. So, um, anyone here read a book by Hugh Trevor Roper called The Last Days of Hitler? Mm, anyone yes. Okay, so it's an amazing book. Uh, Hugh Trevor Roper, a great British historian, went and interviewed all the leading Nazis after 1945. And what he describes is how Adolf Hitler always kept various power groups, the army, the SS, the Gestapo, he always played them off against each other, right? So this is what Putin has been doing for years, mm. so that fighting in Ukraine, you've had the regular Russian army, but you've also had this thing called the Wagner Group, which is a, a, a private militia, very powerful, rich private militia, headed by Mr. Prigozhin, who is <laughs> Vladimir Putin's former chef. Yeah. You also have the Chechens, headed by Mr. Kadyrov, Right, so you have these three different groups. Now, for the last few weeks, uh, Mr. Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, has been denouncing the regular Russian army furiously for letting his men be killed. And actually, he's even claimed that, that the regular forces killed some of his men. Now, he's suddenly taken his Wagner Group guys back into Rostov on the Don, inside Russia, seized the military headquarters and the main buildings in Rostov on the Don, including two very senior Russian officers, um, and is calling on Putin to basically sack the leadership of the Russian army. And Putin has now gone on television to denounce him and say that he must be arrested. And the latest news, about uh, half an hour ago before we came on the stage, is that Kadyrov, the Chechens, who are also very brutal fighters, 
are now streaming into Russia towards oh. Rostov on Don, who knows to do what, but maybe to take on the Wagner group. Holy cow. So that, you know, if the definition of civil war is different armed forces in one nation fighting each other, <laughs> we're pretty close to something like civil war. Now, frankly, Richard, nobody knows wha exactly what's, it what's going on or how it's yeah. going to play out. But what we do know, and why I'm feeling rather cheerful today, is it's very good news for Ukraine. Because Ukraine is just on the verge of launching the big punch in their counteroffensive. And what could be better at that moment to have your enemy dis distracted and half their forces going back into Russia? Yeah. So it's an extraordinary moment. Isn't it? Isn't it? We'll, 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 we'll open the discussion after one more question from me. So if you could think about how you'd like to um, chip in. Uh, should, should the West say uh, Ukraine can join NATO tomorrow? Uh, the West should emphatically say at the Vilnius summit of NATO, which is next month, July the 11th, um, that there is going to be a clear and rapid path to NATO membership, mm -hmm. not instantaneous because how do you, how do you actually have a m serious mutual defense pact mm. for a country which not only doesn't control 20% of its territory, but where that territory is changing every day. But what we should do, and when I say we, I mean also Britain mm. and the US and others, is to give military bilateral military commitments mm. to Ukraine. So the analogy that's sometimes made is with the US and Israel. Some people may like that analogy, some may people may not. Mm. But the mm. idea is you commit to give such military support mm. that the country is not going to be defeated. Right. So that I think what we have to do is to chart a course for Ukraine from if I can put it this way, greater Israel to greater Estonia, mm, mm, right? Mm. But how you do that is, is an open question. And just to answer the question I didn't answer, should we have given them more weapons sooner? Mm. Answer emphatically yes. Yeah, 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 with all kinds of implications for public spending programs and defense expenditure in the West as well. I mean, we're at the moment, we're just robbing Peter to pay Paul, aren't we? And so um, we have to think about our own defense structures and the funding of that as well, I guess. Absolutely, and how we do that is a very important question. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Over to you, would, who, who would like to, to start the discussion? Any? Huh. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. F first of all, in the last half hour, it's been reported that at least some Wagner troops have moved through the Lipetsk region, which is halfway between Rostov and Moscow. So it continues to evolve. Um, <laughs> given your experience, Mr. Gart Nash, it's extremely difficult to take on some of the issues that you've raised uh, in the opposite direction. But I'm going to be brave enough to try in the interest of dialogue. Picking up on a couple of points that you raise, uh, Putin's remark 30 years ago that there were 25 million Russians out, ethnic Russians outside the borders of Russia, and your earlier comment that um, Estonia ranks very highly in the, uh, the lead table of free nations, of, of freedom indicators. I don't know who puts these tables together. Would you make some comments on how you see um, the civil and political status of ethnic Russians in a state like Estonia, for example? If you think of a city like Narva, which is, I think, majority ethnic Russian, are those people, do they have the sorts of civic rights that um, we would take for granted as Europeans? Or is there an issue that the Russians have some motivation for looking out towards their compatriots outside their own borders? Well, let me take that on, and thank you for asking the question. A and, 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 of course, one has to, you know, I mean, let's not pretend that national minorities 
all over Western Europe are perfectly treated, right? I mean, if you think about the Basques in France, for example, but there was undoubtedly a problem in the 1990s and 2000s with the treatment of the Russian minority. And what I would say is, precisely because of the pressure from the EU and this, their desire to be you know, an exemplary democracy, it has got a whole lot better. Uh, and they do have full civic rights. There is a problem about Russian language education, but I would say it is moving in the right direction. But Putin wasn't mainly concerned about Estonia. He was concerned about Ukraine. And here the, the situation is very different because, yes, there were some people in Crimea and in the Donetsk, in the Donbass, who, who thought about themselves as Russians, but there were also an awful lot of people who thought about themselves as Russian-speaking Ukrainians, right? Uh, Putin sees them all as Russians. You, you belong to us. That's like the British saying, the Irish speak English, so they belong to Britain, yeah? Um, uh, they themselves have complex identities as Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And of course, the great irony of this story is that it is Putin himself who, through his own policies, has destroyed what he called the Russian world. So to give you one indicator, there's a, a polling outfit in Kiev which does regular polling, uh, and one of the questions they ask regularly is about sympathy to Russia. So in 2013, before the seizure of Crimea, 80% of Ukrainians said they had a positive view of Russia. 80%. And actually, Russian-speaking Ukrainians didn't have big problems in Ukraine. President Zelensky himself was a Russian speaker, right? Today, the last poll, 2%. So I would say, you know, it's actually Putin himself who has destroyed that wider Russian world by the methods he's chosen, uh, supposedly, to save it. Do you think that the war has kind of catalyzed the de-Russification that's happening in Ukraine now on such a scale, or that it would have happened anyway, that th the de-Russification would have happened anyway, or as you were saying, that kind of Putin's like destroyed it himself, if that makes sense? I think... I, I, it is the primary cause. I, if we go back to 2014, so my figure was 2013, um, so, so you get increased pressure for de-Russification under the impact of the seizure of Crimea and the war in the East for understandable reasons. But still, I mean, I was there in 2015 and, uh, um, uh, you know, you heard Russian everywhere on the streets, books still being published in Russian. Uh, Ukrainian writers, Andrei Kurkov, one of the best-known Ukrainian writers, some of you may know his, 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 his books, still writing in, in, in Russian. Um, after the 24th of 20, 2022, Ukrainians reject everything Russian, everything. I met a young woman from the town of Novakakovka, that may mean something to some of you, because that's a town where the dam has just been blown up. She actually told me about it back then. Her home is now underwater. And I've never forgotten what she said to, to me. She said, I was a Russian speaker until the 24th of February. Right? I, I went to a bookshop where they are collecting Russian language books, any Russian language book, piles up in the, in the cellar, pulping them and sending the proceeds to pay for armored vehicles for the Ukrainian army. <laughs> While I was there, I was just photographing these, these piles of books and a guy came in with a couple of bundles and he said, um, have you got space for 55 volumes of Lenin? <laughs> and they said, yeah, absolutely, bring, bring them in, <laughs> bring them on, the more the merrier. Yeah. Um, now, uh, and they've renamed Pushkin Street. Now, to us, that may seem really extreme. Yeah, what's Pushkin got to do with Putin? When you say that to them, they say, you don't understand. It's no accident that there's no Shakespeare Street and no Moliere Street and no Dante Street in Kiev. Pushkin Street was a result of colonization, of Russian colonization. And now this is a war of decolonization. So 
yes, I think it is Putin's actions from 2014 and above all the full-scale war which has led to this absolutely radical decolonization. I don't think we should simply follow their example and ban everything Russian. I, that would be absurd. Um, and, but I hope that with time after the war as the wounds heal, there may be some repairing of those relations. Do you think that um, President Zelensky and his colleagues feel any deadline? Uh, I mean, there is a US election coming up later this year with an unpredictable outcome and a dangerous, from certainly from uh, Ukraine's point of view, presidential candidate. Is that something that looms in people's minds, do you Hugely, think? Hugely, and I talk to them about it. They basically know that none Putin thinks time is on his side, mm -hmm. and he's probably right. Not only because the one person who could really pull the rug on Ukraine is Donald Trump, mm -hmm. if he wins the US presidential election, not only because anyway there is going to be Ukraine fatigue in the West and it we're unlikely to go on supporting them, but also because Russia is a bigger country. Every six months it conscripts 130,000 new soldiers and they, they, they can build up the size of the army. And if the Ukrainians don't really make a, uh, let's call a decisive success this summer, then Russia has the whole winter to dig in, build up the defenses, and, and secure the territory that, that they have what they're now calling uh, the new territories. That's it, the new territories. So yes, there is very much a sense that it, almost it's, it's make or break time, it's now or never. Um, which is why there's so much nervousness about it, because they have, you know, I've talked to the military experts on this, um, they have 12 brigades, of which nine are Western equipped and trained, and that's <coughs> just about enough to do one really big counteroffensive and then follow up. Mm -hmm. Four brigades plus four brigades. Um, if that fails, they're in trouble. Mm. Gosh, this is a breadth of experience and knowledge you haven't had to get your head round in the first 40 years of your reporting on, <laughs> on European matters. And by the way, in universities, yeah. you know, how many people did military history? We're sitting in a university. We, yeah. we almost forgot about it. We're doing yeah. all these other subjects of history. And yes. now suddenly we're relearning a whole vocabulary of, yes. of military. Yes. Yeah. Any more comments before I... Is there one at the back there? Yes, please. I was just wondering about um, the other officials in the Kremlin, because we always hear about Putin, but with things going so very much not his way at the moment, do you have any opinion about what must be going on in the Kremlin, behind the scenes, and how much backing Putin actually has? Or do you think there will come a point when they just won't back him anymore, some of the senior people in the Kremlin? So, here's a really expert opinion. Nobody knows. And don't believe anyone who tells you they do, because the greatest experts at this stage, we have so little contact and so little insight. Um, there is a man, a powerful figure called Mr. Patrushev, who is very close to Putin, but also has certain other connections. What we do know is really two things. First of all, that significant parts of the elite, the foreign policy elite, the business elite, um, other parts of the Russian government are very unhappy about this war. And secondly, that they're all terrified of Putin. I mean, we saw that in the famous yeah, scene yeah. with Putin lecturing his National Security Council. It is a personalist tyranny. As I said, he has these different forces which he plays off against uh, each other. So another one is called the, the Presidential Guard, which is a large, powerful armed force precisely to defend the president. So, I mean, I, I hope I'm proved wrong by the time we leave this room. It would be wonderful if there was a putsch. Uh, if maybe you can tell us following the news. But 
uh, most experts would consider it's unlikely that any time soon um, the elites are going to tell him your, your, your time is up. What they might tell him, and uh, there's some reporting on this, is um, this is really proving too expensive. We, the Russian military, have reached the limits of what we can do. Um, so they might end up placing some limits on his sphere of action. But I, I think we're unlikely to see, you know, regime change anytime soon. Mm, mm, mm. I think a final question at the back there. Thank you. Uh, hi. Um, just to pick up on that point, I, I wonder whether the is it the, the Siloviki, the, the the inner circle? They seem to be pretty. Uh, uh, they have pretty string a pretty strong hold on on the the reins of power. So I don't know whether there's any uh, prospects of that changing. Um, I was just going to ask a quick, um, I guess, counterfactual um, to ask about um, not long before um, Alexander Litvinenko was killed, um, it was, um, I think he was about to um, publish quite a damning uh, account of uh, and expose some of the alleged uh, uh, things that, that were done by, by Putin and the Kremlin, um, particularly the Moscow apartment bombings explosion. I just wonder whether if that had been brought to light and if there had been the, the, the backlash and the reaction from that, would the, the events of the past decade, two decades, have changed the course of what we've seen? Or do you think that is um, something that perhaps... It's, 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 a, it's a great question because it's, it, it, it makes an important point, which is apropos of the last conversation about Russia. I mean, if we're talking about courage... Anna Politkovskaya, Russian journalist, furiously, immensely brave exposures of, of the, actually the war crimes of the Putin regime, murdered, right? Um, uh, one of the strongest candidates for an alternative president, murdered. Uh, Litvinenko, murdered. That's what happens to Putin's critics. And if we're talking about courage, I mean, Alexei Navalny, narrowly to survive poisoning and then to say, I'm going back. So there's extraordinary courage from his critics. But what's happened to them is, I think, the answer to your question when you're facing such a determined tyranny, but also such a determined tyranny that is quite skillful at controlling the narrative. They're actually rather good at this. There's crude propaganda on state TV, but there's also much more subtle forms of disinformation, misinformation spread on social media. Uh, so they very successfully sold the narrative that this is a war against the West. It's not, we're not fighting Ukraine, of course. We're fighting the West, we're fighting NATO, for example. So that one of the things maybe, just to conclude on this note, to bring it back to Britain, I mean, I think one of the things we have to get much better at is working out how we continue to reach ordinary Russians, right? And actually get through to them. I'll give you a quick example. Amazingly, YouTube is not banned in Russia. Why? Because there would be a revolt of, a revolt of all the mothers of Russia. Because all the stuff that keeps their kids quiet <laughs> is on YouTube. And YouTube have said either you block the whole thing or not at all. So, so why aren't we using YouTube more effectively to get across a message about what is actually happening? And then, of course, if I may end on a provincial note, the disaster of what's happening to the BBC. I, I don't know if any of you ever watched BBC World or BBC News, the TV channel this ludicrous thing that has just happened. I mean, we have what is potentially the best news organization in the world, apart from the Financial Times, of course, uh, <laughs> to the ex-editor here. Um, and, and we're really destroying it. Uh, I mean, the nonsensical idea that you can put together domestic news and genuinely global news so that one evening at 7 p.m. you have 20 minutes about Boris Johnson's resignation honours list, which is of no interest to most people in the rest of the world. And the next evening you have 20 minutes on what's going on in Ghana. 
which is very important but of no interest to domestic viewers. I mean, it's a complete nonsense so that, you know, I very much hope that the next government will think much more seriously about restoring the amazing power and, and credibility of the BBC. Timothy, thank you very much indeed. Uh, the, um, at the end of your wonderful book, you quote a, a French writer with the words um, that it's important to have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, which you take to mean that uh, we anticipate the worst, we should anticipate the worst and plan for the best. And I think on behalf of us all, we'd like to thank you for what you're doing in that respect in this very important moment in our world's history. Thank you very much indeed, Timothy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.